Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here is the host of today's episode, Amna Khaled. Welcome everyone, and thank you for joining us for a conversation today on liberal approaches to free speech and academic freedom. I'm Amna Khalid, Associate Professor of History at Carleton College and one of the founding members of Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights of free speech are under threat. If you'd like to find out more about the organization and its mission, please visit our website at academicfreedom.org. I'm delighted to be moderating this conversation today with two of my all-time favorite public intellectuals on how liberals can make a better case for free speech and how it relates to academic freedom. Randall Kennedy is the Michael R. Klein Professor at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on contract, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. He's the author of several books, most recently, For Discrimination, Race, Affirmative Action, and the Law. And he has a new book coming out in September, so keep your eyes peeled. Randy writes extensively about academic freedom and race relations. His most recent article is titled 100 Years After the Tulsa Race Massacre and was published by the OUP blog. Jonathan Zimmerman is professor of history and the Judy and Howard Berkowitz professor in education at the University of Pennsylvania. He frequently writes about campus politics and academic freedom and his pieces have appeared in publications like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chronicle of Higher Education, the New York Review of Books. I can keep going on and on, but we'll run out of time tonight uh, or today. <laughs> John is the author of several books and his most recent book is Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn, um, a question that we'll be addressing head on today. So let me begin by saying that over the past five years, we've seen an erosion of free speech coming from both the right and the left in terms of their responses to phenomena like fake news and hate speech. Institutions of higher learning, which are the very places that are tasked with cultivating critical thinking in our citizens, an absolute necessity for a well-functioning democracy, have found themselves stuck between the growing calls for racial inclusivity and demands for a safe learning environment on the one hand, and the fundamental importance of freedom of expression for open inquiry on the other. Freedom of expression undergirds free inquiry and knowledge production, and historically, it has been a weapon of the weak. But John, as you point out in your book, it's only in our own era that the two ideals of social justice and free speech have been pitted against each other. So we are at a particularly interesting historical moment. And um, the challenges that we face are not trifling. So we have we find ourselves in the midst of serious questions about the parameters and future of academic freedom which has direct direct implications for the raison d'etre of the university and i'd like to begin by asking our panelists um you know what do you see as some of the key threats to freedom of thought and academic freedom today and where do you see them coming from? We've seen a lot of developments over the last few months, and I'd like to hear from our panelists. So John, maybe we'll begin with you. Well, first of all, Amna, thanks so much for bringing us together, and it's uh, delighted to be here with you and with Randy. Um, to take your question, I think it's really important to emphasize, as you did in your excellent preface, that this is a bipartisan problem. So if we want to talk about the attacks on free speech, we have to acknowledge that they're coming from every side of the political spectrum. Uh, I think, you know, uh, at the same right now, we're seeing, for example, you know, laws that would restrict what universities and indeed K through 12 schools can say about race. And almost all of them are sponsored by Republicans. That is those laws. If you turn on Fox News, you'll see something called cancel culture decried in bright lights. But they generally won't include those laws as part of the critique of cancel culture. Instead, they'll tell you about something very different and also real that comes from the left. 
it isn't so much legislated, I would argue, as something that's been kind of baked into the academic cultures, both of our universities and of our high schools. And as you implied in your preface, I think that one of the sources for that is a certain kind of ahistoricism, that is a lack of awareness about the centrality of free speech to all of the social movements that you know the left holds dear. Um, we just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the constitutional amendment that guaranteed the rights of women to vote. Alice Paul, and if you go back before then, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they were all zealots for free speech. Um, they had to be, because if you took free speech away, you wouldn't be able, they wouldn't be able to critique the oppression that they were experiencing. So I guess the two points I would emphasize is, A, it is bipartisan in sources. And if we're talking about the version that comes from the left, I don't think it's, again, so much legislated as it is um, created by the, and I know this sounds a little bit redundant, but the cultures that we've established on our universities and the kind of politeness that we're demanding that actually prevents us from talking across our differences. Thank you, John. Um, I couldn't agree more. I think what you refer to as politeness is what I was talking about as, you know, the new discourse of inclusivity, which comes with a set of demands which are novel and new. I haven't heard them before when we've talked about inclusion, and I hope we can dig into it a little more. Randy, over to you. Thank you very much. And uh, again, thank you for facilitating uh, this, this discussion. Um, I would like to add two notes to what uh, Jonathan had to say. One, it's absolutely true that over the course of American history, the, uh, the, the, the camps of social justice, and I'm thinking in particularly, I'm thinking in particular, you know, racial justice, gender justice, um, they have marched arm in arm with the champions of freedom of expression for the most part. And here, when I'm, you know, when I, when I, at, at school, when I'm talking with students, particularly students who push me from the left, one of the things I say is, you know, remember students where your rights to freedom of expression came from. When I say your rights, I'm talking about students in public universities, students in public universities who have constitutional rights, where did those rights come from? Those rights came from the struggles of black students in the early 1960s who faced repression and who got the courts little by little by little to recognize student rights. It was the deep South controversies and the lawsuits that were generated by the black students, and by the way, black faculty that created the law that we now depend upon so much. So I agree that a lot of that history has been forgotten and it's not just a matter of history being forgotten. I think what happens is people rely on things about which they know little. So, you know, they, you know, students, they, they rely upon these prior struggles and they've taken these prior struggles for granted because they, you know, they've always had it. They don't have to think about it. And so they don't, they don't think about it and they take it for granted and they don't realize that, you know, there is a struggle all the time for freedom. Freedom is always at risk, whether we know it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not. The forces that want to squelch freedom of expression, of conscience, of learning, of reading, they're always out there. They're always very powerful. And, you know, I think a lot of people have sort of, because of the successes that we've notched, there is a, a, a tremendous amount of complacency though I think that complacency is now being torn away. One piece of history that we ought not forget as well, however, um, is something that happened in the early 20th century. And again, it has to do with race. 
In the early 20th century, the first two decades of the 20th century, there was a very strong campaign on the part of black intellectuals, others as well, but black intellectuals, to censor movies, Birth of a Nation being the most you know, clearest example, um, dramas, The Klansmen, uh, they were very, you know, and when I say leading black intellectuals, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, James Weldon Johnson, Charles Chestnut, they were all against what they viewed as the defamation of black people. They thought that these dramas, that these movies, that these, you know, they, they thought that this was going to poison the public mind, that it was going to justify uh, uh, lynchings, and they were all against it. Now, it seems to me, you know, that needs to be remembered because it's not the case that it's just, you know, yahoos who ask tough questions about freedom of expression and want justifications. You know, there are a lot of there. You know, there are a lot of smart people who have different. You know, who have views that are certainly different than mine. And I think we need to keep that in, you know, we need to keep that in mind so that we don't get smug, so we don't get arrogant, and so that we stay on our toes and are able to answer to smart people who actually question uh, the, uh, you know, some of, some of the things that are, are very important to us. This is an interesting point that you bring up. And I think, you know, as an historian, to me, of course, the, the fact that there is a lack of historical literacy is part of the problem. And like John, you said, knowing how it has historically been the weapon of the week is critical. And we've, we seem to have forgotten it. But I think, Randy, what you're bringing up is very interesting because you're saying historically it's also there have been smart people who have argued against the freedom of speech at various points people we admire people who actually are responsible in part for the freedoms that we have today and there is a tendency for us to think that we are living in exceptional times that this has never happened before but remembering both parts of the story um, seems to be essential as we navigate this moment so um, let me ask you, um, one of the things that I find particularly difficult these days is that you can no longer make an appeal to principles, like broad principles, as a way of pushing the case for freedom of speech, particularly on college campuses. Um, and it, it really has become a battle between people wanting to feel included and safe, and um, the freedom to question ideas. So when we can no longer make those appeals, when, when the appeal to the law and saying something like, this is our constitutional right, doesn't cut muster, perhaps we need to rethink how we're making our case. And this is where I find a lot of liberals um, fail. It, it kind of, we, we reach this point where we cannot begin to think of other ways of making this case. Um, John, you make your case in your book um, very nicely using historical examples. Uh, can I ask you to kind of bring that to bear upon freedom of speech in the context of the academy and academic freedom and make the strongest case you can make for it? <laughs> Well, well, look, you know, I agree that it won't do just to quote John Stuart Mill again, right? You know, I think that point's well taken. We've all heard that before. And just at the pragmatic level, it's not working, right? I mean, it's falling on deaf ears. That's why we've reached this moment. That's why we're having this conversation, you know? Um, and I think what we need, and specifically what our students need, is they need very hands-on and practical encounters with the participants in these dialogues so that they can see the way that these issues have worked, not just, quote, in principle, but in practice. And the example that I often use, um, actually, Randy just mentioned, Mary Beth Tinker. Uh, Mary Beth Tinker, of course, you know, wore that black armband to Warranty Harding Middle School in Des Moines in 1965. And Mary Beth Tinker is not that much older than I am because I'm old. And she's become a friend. 
And, you know, when she came to my class at Penn, she, she gave her spiel and she shows her armband and all that. And then the, the students say, well, look, you know, Ms. Tinker, you were fighting the good fight, right? You were fighting the war in Vietnam. You know, this Milo Yiannopoulos person, this Ben Shapiro person, you know, they, they just hurt people. They just harm people. And it was a really important moment because Mary Beth Tinker said, look, um, there were people, kids at my school that had dads and uncles and brothers that were fighting and dying in Vietnam. Don't you think they were a little bit hurt or harmed by this snot-nosed kid wearing this symbol saying that their loved ones might die for a lie? Of course they were. So my students weren't wrong, right, in the sense that speech can hurt and speech can harm. But I think it was hugely ed educative for them to hear from like this tribune of the free speech story, acknowledging that, but then also pointing out that when that, i.e. harm or imagined harm, becomes your barometer of this, forget about Mary Beth Tinker and forget about speech. So, you know, this isn't about John Stuart Mill and who has rights and who doesn't. You know, this is a very concrete matter, right? And I think that that's really the direction that the argument needs to go is, you know, more and more examples of the way that these ideas, these principles, as you're calling them, have actually operated in practice. Um, uh, that way people can see what the consequences are. And most of all, what the consequences can be if we lose sight of the principles. Randy, you've recently um, elaborated on um, the, the need for liberals to move away from broad kind of abstract principled arguments and adopt a more pr pragmatic approach, which builds on what John just said. Could you, you, you said that at a recent conversation, um, could you elaborate for our audience what you are proposing, which is not fully fleshed out, but is a proposal worth considering? Yes, I, I think in these discussions, um, the, you know, the, the force, the, the, the champions of freedom of expression will roll out. That's right. John Stuart Mill. They'll roll out the Oliver Wendell Holmes dissents. They'll roll out the Brandeis dissents. And we'll, you know, there'll be these, these sort of iconic statements, often very broad. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll expect that to do a lot of the work. And I think especially with, you know, younger people, as Jonathan said, it, it's not doing a lot of the work. And frankly, um, you know, again, these young people are smart. They recognize certain things. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, critical race theory. Let's go to critical race theory. One aspect of critical race theory, a part of critical race theory with, you know, I've, I've certainly been an ideological antagonist, but there were people, uh, Richard Delgado, Mari Matsuda, Charles Lawrence, and their critique of liberal notions of freedom of expression, they said, listen, you know, you make these broad statements about how, you know, in America, people can, you know, say what they want, but now they can't. There are all sorts of limitations on freedom of expression. You you know you can't you can't threaten people. You can't you can't threaten to kill the president. You can't you know. There's a whole bunch of different things that are speech acts that are punishable. So what they said is, well, since there are these various limitations, since there are these various exceptions, why is it? racist hate speech and exception. I mean, if you got these other exceptions, you know, why not ours? Well, that's a good question. And to actually get into the question, really get to it, you have to do, it seems to me, what Jonathan has done. You have to, you know, knock off the big, broad, hand-waving, you know, flag-waving, you know, rhetoric. And let's get to the particulars, get, let's get down to real cases. 
And let's not be legalistic. I think that a lot of the a lot of liberals are, are too legalistic. And I, I say that I'm and I, and I think I fall in that. I'm a lawyer, you know, like to, you know, reach to the judges. I would say forget about the judges for a while. Forget about the courts for a while. Don't say to people, you can do this or you, sh- you, know, you should or you shouldn't do this because the courts tell us something. Forget that. The courts change, for goodness sakes. It seems to me, let, let's, let's be more direct. This is a good, this, you should do this because this is a good way of structuring society. You ought not do this because this is a bad way of structuring society. Good, bad. I would prefer that. And, you know, and, and let's be concrete um, with, uh, with folks and just level with people, not be high handed, not, you know, not be, you know, holier than thou. Somebody asks a question. Let's, you know, examine the question and deal with it and really get uh, concrete. And when I say concrete, I really mean concrete. And let's not, you know, let's not dilly dally. So in the, your, Jonathan, you were talking about Mary Beth Tinker and the question of hurt. In my discussions about this with students lately, one thing that I've been pushing hard is the question of hurt. So, you know, when students broach hurt with me, I say to the students, listen, I'm going to lay all my cards on the table. I'm not going to, I'm not hiding anything. I'm, a, I'm, I'm happy to talk about hurt, but I want, I, want to, I want you to know that I'm quite skeptical of some of the talk of hurt that I hear. My sense is that this has become part of a script that people, you know, talk about being hurt. And now everybody's being taught is talking about it. I mean, these laws, for instance, what do they say? It's against the law for you to tell little little Timmy or little Jane something that's gonna hurt, you know, make them feel hurt. Feelings of anguish. Anguish is what it says. Yeah. Anguish, fine. I mean, I've seen hurt, anguish, uh, distress. <laughs> This has become a generalized thing. People on the left say it, people on the right say it. It seems to me that we need to be very skeptical. You know, frankly, do people feel hurt or is this strategic? And then secondly, if people feel hurt, is that not, is that, is that, is that all such a bad thing? I mean, you know, distress is not always bad. So stress, some hurt, I can imagine being a very useful thing. Sometimes people ought to feel distressed. And then after, you know, and, and I, I'm simply saying these are talking points which we ought not be afraid to engage. Randy, I'm curious on the hurt front. When your students say, look, the reason that we have to prevent hurt is that hurt actually inhibits learning. Mm-hmm. We're here to learn. And if we feel hurt, that's going to inhibit our learning. How do you respond to that? I respond to that, and, and by the way, I should say, be preface my response. So I teach in a law school, and in many ways that makes it, it should make it, and it does make it easier for me because I'm dealing with adults. I mean, not only am I dealing with adults, I'm dealing with adults who've gone through college for goodness sakes. So I think it would be a much more difficult thing if I was talking with eighth graders, ninth graders, you know, even 12th graders, or even if I was talking in college, I think it would be a more difficult thing. What I say to people in, in law school, and I'm very tough, but I said, listen, um, you mean to tell me that, you know, you are within months of being a member of the bar and having people's property, people's lives, you know, (laughs) you're the guardian of people's property and people's lives. And you're telling me that there's something that goes on in class. I'm not, you know, your teacher's not a stranger to you. 
You are in class. This is not something that just sort of happens at the mall all of a sudden. You come to class. You mean to tell me that there's something that could happen in class that would prevent you, throw you off stride so much that you can't learn? If that is true, and it could be true, if it is true, we need to work on that. Because I would feel very badly if I push somebody out into society as a lawyer and they could be thrown off stride by something that they just heard. So if, you know, fine, you're thrown off stride, it seems to me that's something to work on. That's not something to run away from. That is something to work on. In fact, I would think I'd be willing to spend a semester on that alone because I view that as so important. But again, you know, I'm teaching people who were, you know, 25 to you know 30 years old. I think it gets a, it's a, I think I think that the same point, by the way, obtains with younger people, but younger it's it's a more difficult point to make. But that's what I say to folks. Randy, actually, if I can pick up on that and and say, you know, perhaps I feel there is a bigger clash of paradigms happening right now, which lies at the heart of this question of what are the parameters of academic freedom. And that's really the understanding of what the purpose of education is. I find that, so, for instance, what you articulated is very much um, a, a question of education for empowerment, education that enables you to be a citizen in a difficult society. Whereas what I find happening is that a lot of the conversation around safety, a lot of the conversation around um, um, hurt is articulated with the idea of safeguarding um, the student who is inherently and eternally fragile. So the purpose is no longer to empower, but to keep nurturing that fragility, if you will, over a period of time. And as someone who comes not from this educational context within the U.S., I do find that over my brief years over here, which has just been a decade, we continue to infantilize our students such that we are getting students who are coming to college who seem so much younger in their maturity, their emotional and intellectual maturity, than those that, for instance, I encountered 10 years ago when I came here. So I feel like there is a way in which we continue to infantilize. And I want to push back against this idea that you're quite right, younger people need to be dealt with a little bit dif differently, but they're just as capable of dealing with complexity. And it is our false understanding of what children need that might be driving this shift about what education itself is meant to do. Well, I mean, I very much agree with you with your, you know, education for empowerment. And again, in, in, in many of my discussions, the students who sort of are, uh, are challenging me the most are often coming from my left. And one of the things I say to them, and I think this is, is you know, listen, um, you, 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 you say you want, you, you want to be a reformer. You want to change the world. Good. We, we, you know, we, we, you know the, the world's hurting. The world's got a lot of problems. We need educated people with good hearts to, to, you know, to do what they can to, to try to move it a bit. It's very hard to move the world even an inch. You're not going to be able to do that if you are fragile, if you can, you know, if you fall apart because somebody has said something and frankly half the time when people say things especially in the you know in, in our college environments you know a lot of the time it's just something that you know sort of came out of their mouth you know the wrong way you know they didn't intend for it to be hurtful but you know even if it was hurtful I, would I the person that I tell you know the person I raise up I say 
where would we be if John Lewis had acted like you're acting? Where would we be if, you know, John Lewis was falling down and, you know, getting into a crouch because he heard something that he deemed to be insensitive? I mean, where would we be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the irony of the example there is, of course, Lewis was actually injured, but he was injured like by like a two by four from like a racist white cop. A horse actual injury. Right. A horse running over him. Exactly. Exactly. Right. That that really hurts. I mean, I guess the only thing I'd say is I share some of Randy's skepticism about these scripts. But at the same time, I worry that they will become self-fulfilling prophecies. You know, um, about 40 years ago, Arlie Hochschild coined this term called feeling rules. And feeling rules refers to the, again, the the scripts around us that don't determine what we feel because we're all subjective beings, but definitely influence it, right? So feeling is both a collective thing and a personal thing. And I do worry that the more we hype these kinds of injuries, the more likely it is that people will actually start to feel them. So the literature on microaggressions, I think, is relevant here. When Scott Lillianfeld, who unfortunately died recently, when he tried to figure out if there was any consensus on the part of the alleged targets of microaggressions about their you know, microaggressive quality, he couldn't find it. You know, he couldn't find that Asians were as a group offended by the things that were allegedly anti-Asian. And yet if you tell people enough yeah. over and over again, that certain things are offensive, I think it's sort of common sense to imagine that they'll eventually be offended, that it will come to pass. Now, how that's in their interest, I think, is the really important question, because I don't believe it is. Well, students have seen, you know, what sorts of statements will advance whatever proposition you're seeking to advance. Yeah. So if you say hurt, and then, you know, the people that you're trying to influence say, oh, hurt. OK, well, then, you know, I won't you know, I won't say that anymore. I won't I won't go there. Well, then, you know, people people are getting what they want through saying certain things that's going to create its own incentive structure. I want to go back to what Amna Amna, I would agree with you. You know, we, we've been focusing on higher education and, of course, higher education is extremely important. One thing that I think, though, that, you know, people who are interested in freedom of expression, academic freedom, need to think more about are the lower grades. I mean, you know, when a when a student is a freshman in college, they've gone through, what, 12 years, 12 years of socialization. Well, Uh, if they've been socialized in a certain sort of way, then, you know, you've, you've got your hands full with the freshmen. And I think we need to, we need to be a, a lot more attentive to the socialization of people, you know, frankly, before they come to college. I, I, I want to endorse that. I mean, I, I wrote a book uh, about the teaching of controversial issues in American history, and it's a very short book. And the reason is there's been so little of it. Um, and we don't actually teach people how to debate and deliberate these issues, in part because, A, the teachers aren't prepared to do it, mm-hmm. and B, they often don't have the right, actually, to do it. You know, there have been teachers who've been fired for doing lessons that I did as a high school teacher. Um, so in some ways, it makes a certain kind of awful sense that our students ought to come, come to college unequipped to deal with these sorts of dialogues because they haven't encountered them, as Randy was saying, in their prior education. It's not rocket science. I mean, if you don't teach something to somebody, they won't do it. Uh, I play tennis. I don't play squash. If you put me on a squash court, I wouldn't know what to do. Um, uh, I would need a lot of training and preparation to do it. The issue is also not just that if you don't teach them, but if you teach them tennis and then put you on a squash court, you will do what you learned in your tennis. It's not that you'll stand there. And then the issue, like uh, Rebecca 
Bardo, one of um, um, someone from the audience has, has said, you know, there is currently an almost social capital in being the victim and a moral authority or power of some sort. And that is incentivizing particular kinds of behavior that are threatening academic freedom and freedom of expression. Um, there's a question from the audience, and please, if anyone else has questions, you can put them in the Q&A. Um, but I'd like to address this to both of you, but perhaps Randy in particular. Um, it's from Stanford Levinson, who says, isn't there an important difference between deciding on what limits, if any, should be placed on speech in the general marketplace as against the particular circumstances of arguments within the university? So many arguments that can are clearly protected if made in Hyde Park um, receive an F in college. Uh, and the question is, what would we say to a student who said something like, well, of course, slavery could have been a very bad thing. But, you know, um, you should realize that most slave owners were fine people who treated their slaves with dignity. And um, Stanford says, I assume that's demonstrably false and would properly be punishable within the context of the university. So this does pose a question of what ideas get punished on campus uh, versus discredited. And I'd, I'd love to hear both your thoughts on, on this. Um, let's take that last example. If a, if, 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 I mean, I, I, I teach, I've taught many courses on race relations law, you know, the law of slavery. If a student came to my class, you know, we're talking about the cases, you know, slavery cases, and a student said, you know, actually, my sense is that, uh, you know, many slaveholders were, you know, decent people who looked after their slaves, you know, you know, they talked about their slaves as being part of the family. And I think they were, you know, I think, I think actually, you know, we, we should take that very seriously. And I bet that there's a lot to that. I would not punish that student. I would say, okay, let, you know, let's, let's examine that. Is what you just said true? I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that's, you know, sort of, all, you know, you can't, you can't say that. No, I wouldn't say you can't. What do you mean you can't say that? There, there are plenty of people who, in fact, have said that. There are, you know, people who um, actually are distinguished historians who have said just that. I think that they were wrong. I think that they were de demonstrably wrong. I think it would be actually, frankly, if I were teaching a class, I would welcome a student saying that because it would provide, you know, it would, the, the class would go quiet. The anxiety level would go up, but it would provide a nice basis for saying, well, you know, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at our cases. Let's take a look at what historians have said about, for instance, the punishments with respect to slavery. You know, is what you say true? I think you could have a perfectly fine class with that statement as the provoking, you know, as 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 as, as the provocation. Would I would I, you know, would I punish that? No. One last thing, and then I'll be. I think what the the, the point about academic freedom being different than general First Amendment freedom is an important one. Sometimes in these discussions, we act as if, you know, the, the college campus is the same as the park. It's not. When I teach contracts, I'm teaching contracts. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't teach theology. I don't teach geology. I don't teach astronomy. Presumably, if I was to start teaching astronomy, I'm sure I would get a visit from the dean. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there are limits. We do grading, right? I say that, you know, this, this paper is an A paper. This paper is a F paper. 
we, you know, we do, we, we do grading. We say that this is a subject, this is the subject we're going to focus on, this is not the subject. So, you know, ac academia does have its limits. We do draw lines and we need to be very attentive to that. Mm -hmm. Again, we need to be careful about sort of overstating our premises. But and, and context matters. Context you know, I mean, matters. I think, you know, and, and indeed, although this is the K through 12 realm, it, that was at the heart of the recent Supreme Court case involving the cheerleader, right? So, you know, the cheerleader was sanctioned for something that she typed into Snapchat when she was at a delivery at, at a, you know, convenience store. Um, and the court said that the school can't sanction her for that. But if the, if the kid had said, you know, F school, F cheer in the middle of algebra class right. or during a graduation speech, the school would have been entirely within its rights to say, oh, no, you can't say that. You can do it in the convenience store, right, on your own time, right, but not here. Um, to, to Sandy's example about slavery, I mean, because I'm a historian, I would use that as a teachable moment. I think that it would be a great entree into um, showing students how interpretations change over time, because the interpretation that Sandy described was the dominant interpretation really until when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And everyone should know that. And then everyone should know how it changed and it changed in subtle ways. So Eugene Genovese very famously said that, you know, a lot of slaves did actually regard sort of the Massa as this great figure because the Massa had so much power. And especially if you interview them 70 years later, they're recalling their childhood. Of course, they're going to imagine this person as sort of this powerful figure. And that's all really important because you get at questions of interpretation, you get at questions of sources, right, of memory. That's the good stuff. Like, that's why I'm here. Uh, and if I just say, no, no, we can't say that, we can't talk about that, we're not going to learn, which I think, I think is the point here. Let me throw in another one. And by the way, let me just sh a, a shout out. If that was Professor Sanford Levinson of the <laughs> University of Texas Law School, hello, one of my favorite <laughs> teachers of all time, had him as a teacher, uh, at Princeton many, many decades ago now, a great teacher, Sanford Levinson. And, and he and his wife blurbed our book. Thank you for that. Well, all yeah. the better. But let me yeah. give you another example. I, again, one of the things that's a problem for learning is a sense of, you know, well, you can't say that. The world's a big place and there are all sorts of ideas. So here's one, um, you know, the person who, who says, you know, if you're talking about reparations, for instance, talking about reparations and a person says, you know, hey, I'm against reparations. Actually, uh, African-Americans uh, should feel good should be thankful that their forebears were enslaved because it got them out of Africa and, you know, American slavery was basically a school, maybe a harsh school, but a school for civilization. Let's imagine somebody says that. The fact of the matter, again, you know, if it was said in my class, you know, I'd say, oh, well, you know, let, let's take that on. Well, I wouldn't, you know, freak out. It wouldn't be this, oh, you know, how can you, know, how can you possibly say it? No, no, no. The fact of the matter is there are people who have said that. There are African-Americans who have said that. That was a, that was a strand of African-American Christianity. The idea, you know, God intends everything. God intended black people to be enslaved so that they could, in fact, you know, become Christianized. Well, there have been people who've said that. I mean, you know, what? We're, you know, we're supposed to run away from that? No. Let's, that's there. Who has said that? You know, when was it said? When did it drift out? Let's just chill. Let's relax. And let's be willing, let's be confident enough, frankly, to take on everything. 
This is an interesting, um, I'm going to turn it slightly, but also connect it to what you were saying, Randy, take on everything. And I have a question here, you know, which is, what do we do with things like Holocaust denial? And I'm going to, I'm going to venture into that territory myself and say, again, I, I, you know, what John said, it depends on the context in which that kind of argument is being made. Sadly, we've become uh, an incredibly literal minded society, it seems, and metaphor and context are the victims of this way of thinking. So if someone's suggesting that, again, it can be a great teaching moment. But to, to talk about making a case for academic freedom and, you know, what it means. I really love the way, Randy, you talked about that there are limits. You know, we can't walk in when we're historians and talk about physics. There, that's just not an option. Not only are there limits, there's also academic responsibility, um, with, which I think is a part of the conversation that often gets shafted because we get into this realm of every idea is equal. And it's not. That's our academic responsibility as professors to point out which ones are and which ones aren't. But this conversation about the limits of free speech on campus is taking place within the wider context of what's happening to the university. And here we have, you know, uh, I'm going to synthesize a few questions that have come along, but it's, you know, what role do university administrators play in this shift towards infantilizing our students in terms of eroding the rights of faculty to take on contentious questions? Um, and particularly, I have a question here from Christina Groover, who's saying, you know, as a white professor, um, when a student of color comes and makes an allegation in terms of harm, she finds it very difficult to, to use that as a teaching moment, to push back. And what are some strategic workarounds to that that won't get her fired, but will also serve as an important way of instructing that student about the claim that's being made. So I do find that we're in a particular moment where the, the heavy handedness of the administration with respect to freedom of expression on campus is itself um, a very real threat to academic freedom. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I mean, look, um, uh, I think it's a great and a poignant question. And I want to underscore the part which he says and not get fired um, because that's not a danger for me. Uh, and the reason as I have tenure, but we were talking about this before the show started, we have to realize the context, the academic and administrative context for this discussion, the huge change in the university over the past 40 years, which is that when I was starting out, the majority of faculty were on this thing called the tenure track and now the minority are. And I think that's a hugely important context that we must not lose sight of. Um, so uh, if, as I suspect, the questioner is in the 70%, I get it. You know, she has every reason to be afraid. Look at everything that's happened. Um, that's why the 30% have to raise their voice, mm -hmm. precisely because we have those protections. Come on, what's it for, right? Um, that is, you know, uh, I have a kind of privilege that the questioner doesn't have. And what I need to do is to use my voice to make sure that more people that don't have that privilege can raise theirs. Um, I agree with all that you just said. On the question of administration, I think we have some real problems. Um, you know, the, it, it's a really good thing. It's a good thing that people in university life uh, really, you know, want to improve the situation for those who have historically been so terribly marginalized. That's a good thing. It's a good thing that, you know, a more welcoming environment, a more supportive environment for those who've been marginalized. That's good. Uh, that, that, that itself is the product of a tremendous struggle. That's good. Like so many things, you know, life's complicated. You know, you have a good thing, but, you know, oftentimes with good things, you know, they have their bad element. And, you know, the, the diversity, equity, inclusion campaign, a lot of good. On the other hand, I have seen some real problems. Um, 
that do pose, you know, as far as I'm concerned, real threats to academic freedom, uh, mandatory, you know, trainings in which, you know, as if, as if there is some playbook that is, you know, beyond question, uh, as if there's certain things that everybody agrees to. And, you know, this is the way it is, and you better say this, and if you don't say this, out. Well, you know, that attitude and those sorts of mandatory regimes, that's right, the 30% needs to speak up very much against that. Because one thing that we've seen, and again, the last few weeks, you know, other people are observing. Uh, other people can roll out some mandatory stuff too. If you can say, for instance, you cannot teach so-and-so, you know, well, other people can say you cannot teach so-and-so. So it seems to me that, you know, maybe one very practical thing would be, what would you say if your ideological adversary said this? So every time you say you can't teach such and such, let's put the ideological shoe on the other foot. How would you feel? If you would say, no, 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 I'm not part of that. Well, that might mean that you should get off of, you know, whatever mandatory thing that you're trying to push. Um, you talked about with, with, the, with the person, with the white teacher. My view is that, you know, or at least one thing that I would suggest that people think about is trying to use transparency as a as 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 a as a way as a, as a as a way of protecting oneself. Now you know I'm saying this. You know I'm you know I'm a 66 year old black man, and so especially if we're talking about race stuff, you know I haven't gotten what I'm sure a lot of people would get because you know the teacher you know the students see you know they you know I've written stuff. You know, ba you know, I've written stuff. I'm 66. I'm black. You know, there, there's certain things they're not going to raise with me. They're just not. Um, you know, I would say, and I've said to you know white colleagues, I said, listen, why don't you just why don't you try to be why don't you just be straightforward? If you feel anxious, if you feel like you know you're um, you, 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 you actually disagree with the student, but you're feeling anxious about saying so. Frankly, I, what about saying that? Uh, but what, see, about, what, about, what, about, what about saying yeah. you had said such and such, you have said that such and such is hurtful, you have indicated to me, you know, certain beliefs. I, you know, I, I, I see where you're coming from. And frankly, I'm ambivalent about even going forward further with the conversation. But, you know, we are in a university and I am your teacher. And, 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 and maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, you can come back and correct me. But this is my view. It's my provisional view. Maybe I'm wrong with my view, but this is my view. And why not, you know, does it make you somewhat vulnerable? Yeah, it makes you somewhat vulnerable, but, you know, we are teachers. And I think we're going to have to take on a certain amount of vulnerability in order to, you know, move the, you know, teaching enterprise. I, mean, I couldn't agree more, but I think another important context is we've got a lot of pretty strong social science evidence now that both students and faculty are afraid yeah. and that they're biting their tongues. Yeah. But we haven't, to the question about administrators, have really had an official acknowledgement of that. So, yeah. you know, after the FIRE survey came out last year, of you know, 20,000 some odd students at 55 campuses, the majority of whom said they did not feel 
that they could say what they thought. I didn't hear a huge groundswell of university leaders saying, hey, this is bad and we're going to inhibit learning. Um, I didn't hear that at all. So weirdly, the fact that people are afraid is something we're afraid to say. Yeah. You know, and I think that's really a testament to the dark side of our moment. We know people are afraid. We have evidence for it. But, you know, in an environment of censorship, you can't say that there are things you can't say. And I think that's part of the problem here. Really well, again, to go back, again, Jonathan, to go back to your 30%, I mean, the faculty is going to, I think, have to step up more vis-a-vis -vis administrators. I mean, frankly, protecting, you know, the faculty, it's the faculty is the heart of the academic mission of the university. And I think the faculty is going to have to push back more vis-a-vis -vis the, you know, administrators right. and, and students. I think the faculty is going to have to step up more. But, but Randy, I mean, obviously, you know this. Another important institutional context for this discussion is the administrators have dwarfed us. So, you know, 40 years ago, these were the faculty and these were the administrators. So there were more of us than them. And now they sort of crossed in the 90s and now there are more of them than us. I mean, that's what's happened. Um, so I didn't say it's going to be order. easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is, I have a question actually, or, or a comment rather, that comes in from an administrator, um, Archana Shridhar, and she says, and it complicates our conversation, right? She says, I wouldn't be so quick to lay this at the feet of administrators. Many tenured faculty are also calling for mm -hmm. speech limitations yeah. based on the cases I've seen, faculty on faculty often. So here is the problem. It's not just, you know, we often frame the problem as students and their demands, but it's actually faculty themselves who are of that ilk. So she says, I also think that we administrators are often loath to put ourselves in the position to be arbiters of speech and would rather avoid it. It would be good for tenured faculty to truly take on those difficult pro-speech positions out loud and own their privilege in terms of collegial governance, rather than staying silent for administrators to take on the issue. And um, I think, again, this goes back to what we earn as academic freedom, especially as tenured faculty, comes with a grave responsibility, not just to our disciplines and what we teach, but to those of us on campus who do not have the freedom to speak as openly as we do. But it, I do want to lay the blame at the feet of faculty too, um, because we have reneged on a key responsibility, I feel, that we have towards our colleagues, towards the entire academy. Again, I don't want, I, I do think that the administrative apparatus is part of the problem. I don't want to go overboard on that. Mm -hmm. uh, faculty too. I mean, last summer, I mean, something that really just grabbed me by the lapels was, you know, a letter signed by a couple of hundred faculty members at my alma mater a wonderful place. I think Princeton University is a wonderful place. But, you know, last summer, there was a faculty letter that went out that was signed by a whole lot of faculty members that actually proposed a committee that would, you know, sort of provide surveillance of faculty people insofar as their research and so far as their teaching vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, racism. I thought it was a horrible idea. And I thought, oh, you know, th this is just a case where people signed something, they just, they didn't look at it. But then when it was publicized, there were very few people who jumped ship, very few. And in fact, there were some people who doubled down. And so, yes, I do think that faculty member, this is, this is, uh, it's not just administrators, it is faculty people. And I think that, you know, faculty people who don't, 
agree with this ought to be willing to, you know, say so. You can have a good friend. You can have a good friend whom you admire. But you can say, hey, listen, on this one, you are wrong. And I want publicly to say you are wrong. This is just too important. I mean, this, this, right. this, is, this is too important. We cannot be quiet about this. Yeah. And, and look, I don't want to be a wet blanket. I agree with what Randy's saying, obviously, a thousand percent. But here's another context we have to keep in mind, which I've also explored in my other writing, which is um, the, the, the rise of the research function, and the diminution of the teaching function. I think it's so interesting, this discussion, so many examples that Randy has um, brought up come out of the classroom, come out of his classroom. And obviously, you know, with Randy and Amna, we're talking to two people who have reputations at their respective institutions for being dedicated teachers. But let's also remember that's not the reason they're who they got to the place they are. Uh, the reason they got to the place they are is what they published. Um, and, uh, you know, that's increasingly the case across multiple kinds of institutions. And I think that's another context for this, because, you know, when the teaching function was more incentivized, more valued, which I believe it was in earlier eras, I think it was more likely that faculty members had an investment in the moral formation of young human beings, you know, which is really what we're talking about here. You know, um, what's, what's their psyche? What's their hurt? What's their learning? Um, and, and again, I want to be really clear here. I'm not saying the faculty doesn't care about teaching. What I'm saying is the institutions don't incentivize teaching. That's a different thing. Mm -hmm. But I also think that's part of the context here. I think, well, you're raising, a, a, related to that is the whole, yeah, the, 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 being a good university citizen. So, you know, everybody, you know, I mean, People want to improve their lot, and we do things which are, you know, we, we, which we think are going to improve our lot. And so maybe one thing we need to think about with, you know, in the, from the university's position, what can the university do to incentivize good citizenship? And good citizenship in this context means actually paying attention to the governance of the university. I mean, actually, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there's some people who might say, you know, actually, no, nah, I'm not gonna pay attention to that, forget it. That, you know, what, why, why do that? Right. That's taking time away from, you know, doing this thing over here, which- It's all risk and no reward. Yeah. I mean, from, from the point of view of a lot of people, and, and they're not wrong. When I say they're not wrong, I'm just talking about in an institutional bloodless incentivized way. You know, but, you know, look at these bias response teams that, you know, Amna and Jeff Snyder have written about. I mean, if you have any historical sense at all, that should give you hives. They're star chambers, anonymous complaints about faculty members that can then be put into their file and used in, you know, tenure decisions. Um, I think a lot of faculty probably think that's a little scary and awful, but they just don't want to raise their voices because either they already have tenure or even if they don't, like, what's the candle in the game there? You can kind of see the way that the train is moving. Mind your P's and Q's, you know, tend to your own garden, move forward. Unfortunately, we're conservative people. That's the real problem here. It doesn't matter who we vote for. You know, academics are conservative. I, I agree, but here's one thing. It gets back really to the very beginning. You know, how do we, you know, we're going in a direction that we don't like. There are a lot of things that we don't like that are going on. How, you know, how do we confront them? It seems to me that one thing that we need to do is um, we need to convince ourselves convince our colleagues, convince our students, convince our neighbors that if we don't change things, um, we need to make it, we need to, in a sense, make the stakes more vivid than they are. This is not just something that's, you know, useful or, you know, a, 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 a topic of conversation for this webinar, right? This is something that is going to actually affect day by day, everybody in the country. Because 
you know, if the universities, if the universities go down, if the universities go down, what does that mean? That has consequences on things like being able to, you know, come up with a vaccine for some new disease that, you know, nobody's seen before. I mean, that's, that's a very serious thing. Uh, if the universities go down, that's going to have consequences for the engineering that's going to be required to confront, you know, uh, the, uh, the degradation of our environment. I mean, the universities are absolutely central. Th thinking, thought is absolutely central and we've got to make that, I think, more vivid to people, including, by the way, the people who do not come to the university. Remember, you know, what? I don't I forget what percentage, but a, a lot of people, at, le at least half, probably more of people in the United States don't have the tremendous benefit. I think one thing we ought to do, you know, let's try to make everyone understand the stakes involved in freedom of thought. It's not some sort of, you know, as you know, some sort of uh, eccentric thing. It's a very central thing for the good of society, whether you're at the university or not. Randy, I think that final comment of yours is a fantastic place for us to end our conversation today. I, of course, would love to continue and I could talk to you all day, um, but we're running out of time. I just want to thank our panelists again for joining us. This was a most stimulating and thought-provoking discussion really does make a case for a more pragmatic for us to explore a more pragmatic way of making a case for freedom of speech. Thank you again very much. Thanks, John. Thanks, Randy. This has been fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in. And we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.